We're gonna take Dogecoin to the moon. To the moon. Making this crypto mean one dollar soon. Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are gonna be talking about reading the Bible as advocacy, reading the Bible as propaganda. And as an example, we will be using Hebrews, the first chapter and a little bit of the second chapter, as an example of how to read the Bible. Now, I was doing a Bible study with my kids on Hebrews, and I gather them around the table. I say, what is Hebrews? And after a little bit, they kind of get it. They're like, oh, it's a letter. Yes, it's a letter. What is the purpose of letters? How do letters function? And they really couldn't give me an answer. They're still kind of young. So I grabbed a letter off the table, and it was one of these mortgage letters. Oh, the interest rates are so low, and and uh, you could uh, be paying this low interest rate on your house. So all you have to do is refinance your mortgage, uh, such and such and such. And I asked my kids, what is the purpose of this letter? And they said, oh, they're gonna they're informing you about the low interest rates. No, 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 no. Nobody just writes a letter just to give you some information out of the kindness of their heart to tell you about interest rates are being low. Um, and so after a little bit, they kind of got it. They said, oh, they want your money. Yeah, they want my money. The purpose of this letter is not to inform me about interest rates. That, that might be the content. But the purpose is to affect some sort of change in me. In this case, the change they want in me is for me to give them my money. They want my money, and they're giving me information that might persuade me to act in a way to give them my money. That's the purpose of this letter. It's propaganda. It might be true propaganda. Maybe it's not a scam. Maybe it is a real low interest rate. Maybe I can get that. It might be true propaganda, but it's propaganda nonetheless. It wants some sort of change in me, the audience. That's the purpose of this letter. It's not. It's just not this nice thing, just uh, informing me right now of, of current interest rates for my own benefit. It wants change in me. Another good example about how we have propaganda all around us is uh, I, I showed my kids the movie The Truman Show. Now, The Truman Show is a movie about a guy, and he's in this like a biodome type of world, and he doesn't know it. And uh, he wants to travel outside and see the world, but they can't have that because they want to keep him secluded in this bubble world. And so they have to propagandize him throughout the movie. Uh, they, they try to convince him never to leave. And he's at the travel agency one day, and there's a poster on the wall, and it's a picture of a plane getting struck by lightning and getting destroyed, and it says, uh, this could happen to you. Basically, it's propaganda trying to affect in him, change his desire to travel into a desire not to travel. So when we look around us in the real world, when we see news, when we see media, when we watch TV shows, everything we consume, we need to consider it as propaganda. Figure out the message, what they're trying to teach us, what kind of changes that they are attempting to affect in us. And the Bible's no different. The Bible's no different. So in Walter Brueggemann's Theology of the Old Testament, part of his subtitle is that it's advocacy. The purpose of the Old Testament, the purpose of is for the authors to affect some sort of change in the audience. They have an audience, and the audience is turning to false gods, and typically the books are structured in a way to tell them about the true God as opposed to the fake gods. So they talk about who Yahweh is, what kind of person he is, 
what kind of things Yahweh can do, what kind of temperament Yahweh has. And so all of these descriptions are meant to inform Israel in such a way that they turn and worship Yahweh rather than the false god. So this is one very good reason why Calvin's explanation of his condescending language just it just doesn't work with the Bible. The Bible is advocacy, advocacy of the true God rather than the false gods. And so to say that it's presenting a false picture of who God is completely undermines the entire purpose of what this text is actually doing for its audience, teaching them about the true God. If it's all condescending language, if we can't trust it, then it's not affecting its purpose. It's not telling them about the true God in relation to and as opposed to the false gods. It's a lie. The Bible is propaganda. It is meant to inform an audience. It's meant to tell the audience something to the effect that it affects some sort of change in the audience. The audience believes one thing, and the author is attempting to make that audience believe something else. So turning to Hebrews, Hebrews 1.1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And so this is apparently talking about Jesus, Jesus the Christ. Of course, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means Messiah or anointed, just as David is a Christ, and just as Cyrus also is a Christ in the Bible. There's various anointeds. But Jesus was the hope of the Old Testament apocalyptic texts, which wanted some sort of Christ-like figure to come back in God's place and rule the world. So Jesus is uh, Christ, Jesus Christ. But uh, those those words aren't quite used here. It's talking about God's son, which is very interesting. Why is he pointing out that Jesus is the son of God and pointing to this son of God language explicitly and not using the name Jesus? God has a son, and what does that son do? The son speaks to us, and this son has been appointed heir of all things, and apparently through this son he made the world. So in this author, Jesus is a creative element, perhaps in the creation of the world. Why would he be telling this to his audience? Does his audience believe this? Is he just informing them about things that they already accept? It doesn't appear that way as we read on. This seems to be a setup for his main point that he's trying to get through to his audience, which his audience does not accept. So already we might notice that uh, in the text of Hebrews, we're missing an audience. I guess we could assume that the audience is in fact the Hebrews, the title of the book. Hebrews, of course, are Jews. Jews are a subset of Hebrews, but they're used interchangeably. We don't have an author. Paul typically starts his letters off with authorship. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, something like that. This is probably not a work of Paul. Whoever wrote this, probably not Paul. And we'll kind of see that as we go on. As people read Hebrews, it should be very apparent. Whoever wrote this, it was not Paul. But uh, there's, there's no introduction. There's no author listed, which leads us to speculation. Who did write this? And we won't get into that here, but it's interesting that no author is listed. Verse 3, Who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
lot of things to notice here about what he's teaching this audience about who we assume is Jesus. Uh, Jesus isn't mentioned. So there's a son of God. The son of God is the express image of his person. He upholds all things. Let's go look at some of this uh, Greek being so the express image of his person, the Greek being used there, is character. He's the character. Brightness is apogasma. And so it's like a flash of brightness, something like that. It's interesting that hypostasis, hypostasis is not used in this context. The image is character. So Jesus is the character of God. Now, what, what does that mean exactly? Um, probably... That when you see Jesus, you're seeing God or a representation of God or seeing God himself. Something along those lines, which all of those readings are particularly interesting in this context. He starts out the book of Hebrews talking about the sun. This sun is uh, the radiance of God. The sun created the world. This God, this, this, uh, this, this sun is the exact imprint of God's nature, upholds the universe, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the image here being used is of a throne in heaven. And you get this throne imagery throughout the book of Hebrews. God is in heaven, sits on a throne, and Jesus sits at his right hand side. Uh, just look up the word throne throughout the New Testament and Old Testament. You get a lot of heavenly throne image. And Jesus on God's right hand. Revelation, Jesus sits on the right hand of God. Uh, in a throne room, there's a throne room going on. This throne room imagery is particularly interesting for me because what it does tell me is that the author of Hebrews has not quite bought into some of the Platonic categories that uh, Philo of Alexandria, for example, would hold about God's transcendence in a way that God can't interact with the material world, doesn't have spatial location, anything like that. To the author of Hebrews, God is in heaven and interacts with Jesus in the heavenly sphere. He also watches the world with his eyes. As we will read later, but not today, but later on in Hebrews, God watches the ways of man. That's where God's omniscience come from. God knows because God sees. Again, notice this emphasis on who that son is. Does his audience already believe that? Let, let's, let's read on and see what else he says. Having become as much superior to angels as the name, he has inherited is most excellent than theirs. That reads kind of weird, so we'll flip to New King James. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And so his audience apparently does not necessarily believe that uh, Jesus, or the Son as is identified so far in this chapter, is not superior to the angels. Uh, and we read going on, he starts to give arguments to this effect. Is real interesting. His audience accepts that Jesus was was a man, and accepts that Jesus had a special place in religion. They would probably be considered Christians, but they don't appear to believe that Jesus was anything more than just a prophet. He has to, by series of arguments, argue to them that Jesus had a special place in the divine world, in the divine realm, in some way. And we already see the argument starting to form. Explicitly, we read in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. He's starting to put out arguments. He's saying, You already accept 
that uh, God said these things to Jesus, these things indicate that Jesus had a special status, more soul than the angels. The angels didn't get the special treatment. Jesus is above the angels. He's arguing pretty fervently. This doesn't seem like information that he's just trying to list out for us to read like a dictionary. He is advocating something, something that they do not accept. People at this time, his audience, not accept that Jesus is above the angels. He has to tell them, yes, Jesus does have a special place. Six, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels, spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire? Eight, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. These are all statements, according to the author of Hebrews, to the Son. The Son has some sort of immortality. But to the angels, has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? So the picture here is subjugating enemies. If you subjugate your enemies, you can put your feet up, and they will act as your furniture. They are subjugated. They are pacified. And he says that the angels, he doesn't communicate this to, that the angels have enemies and the angels will be using the enemies as furniture. That's that's not what's going on here. The sun has a special place such that God will make the enemies of Jesus, Jesus's footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So the angels have a specific purpose. He's saying this is a lesser purpose than Jesus. Jesus has a higher rank than these angels. These angels are just ministering spirits, and the people who are Christians, these angels, protect and guide. But Jesus is above that. Jesus is a right-hand man in the heavenly places. Switching back to the ESV, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So his audience are people who are Christians, who have been ministered, by someone who they believe who is mutually authoritative to the author of Hebrews. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? Uh, they're, they're all one. They're unified. They're of the same theological tradition. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was tested to us by those who heard. So whoever wrote Hebrews did not interact with Jesus. They're they're secondary, which is actually not Paul's claim. So when you read Paul, Paul says, I was given my message directly by Jesus. And through these visions, uh, through through my time dealing with him spiritually, it wasn't from James. He, He makes a case very clearly in Galatians. Whoever wrote Hebrews, it was not Paul. The author of Hebrews points to his authority as people who had interacted with Jesus. And so this is a mutual authority to his audience. His audience is Christians. His audience are Christians who agree that uh, Jesus was some sort of prophet figure 
And uh, there, there's people who interacted with Jesus who are authoritative, and they're authoritative because, because in verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These people with whom Jesus interacted, they're authoritative because they have signs and wonders that were given to them by God. And so the author of Hebrews is pointing to their authority and what they have witnessed to him about Jesus. He's saying, you need to accept their witness as well. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is not on the same level as the angels. He's not below the angels. He is above the angels. His audience does not believe it. He goes on. it's, It's pretty clear what's happening here. There are Christians, fairly commonly, who are Hebrews, Hebrew persuasion, who believe Jesus was not God. They, they don't believe Jesus was divine. They believe he was just a man, was a prophet. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he's talking about Jesus. Everything's going to be subjected to Jesus. That seems to be how he's using this statement. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the audience that he's talking to, he's anticipating their arguments that Jesus was lower than the angels. Well, Jesus was a man. Jesus grew up. Jesus died. He didn't, he did man things. You know, angels don't do those things. They're not mortals. They don't, they don't die on the mortal plane. And so he has to address these, these accusations, these possible arguments, why Jesus would in fact be just a man and not have any divine status. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste deaths for everyone. And so he's not denying their arguments. Their arguments are valid. Jesus did grow up. Jesus did die and things like that. The author of Hebrews acknowledges that, but argues these things were necessary. Yes, Jesus did die, but it served this other purpose. It served a divine purpose. It's not evidence that he was a man. It was actually evidence, you could flip it, it's actually evidence that he was doing divine things because he's fulfilling this divine purpose. He's disarming their possible arguments. He's, he's, he's turning them around. He's, he's trying to subvert them. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Notice these subtle references throughout the author of Hebrews, throughout his writings, as to Jesus being a creative element in creating the world. It says, first fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. These subtle references are trying to reinforce this fact over and over, that Jesus was a creative element in the creation of the world. And of course, that will give him status. The the subtle referencing to that is... uh, Assuming your argument, it's it's uh, you've you've assumed your sale, and now you're just reinforcing it to your audience. Salesmen will try this technique. So if you go to a car dealership, for example, and uh, you're looking at a car, and they'll they'll say, "Oh, which color car did you want to buy?" 
So they assume you have already are going to buy the car. They talk to you as if you've already decided to buy the car, and they'll reinforce in your mind that you want to buy that car. They assume the sale. This is argument technique, so it's very doubtful that the audience believes that Jesus was involved in creation, but it's subtle reference to it. Uh, the illusions are just trying to reinforce in the audience's mind that this is in fact the case, and it's taken for granted that this is the case. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of the death, that is the devil. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He is granting their argument. Jesus died, but Jesus died for reasons. He died because he needed to die for the divine purpose. He died to deliver us from death, to defeat death. He died for us. And he had to be like us in every respect, which would include death. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make perpetuation for the sins of the people. Jesus, yeah, granted he was like us, a man, uh, but that was necessary for his purpose, for his function. He had to do that. He's granting the argument. He's explaining the reason Jesus needed to be like us in every respect. Every man respect. Yes, Jesus was a man like us, but Jesus is above the angels. Jesus was involved in creation. Jesus does have this divine place. Jesus is at the right hand of God. Jesus is not just a man. You think he's just a man. You think he died like a man. You think he's just a prophet. But no, that is an aspect of his divinity. That is an aspect of his divine mission something he needed to do. He's not really like that. He's not really like how you think a man is. He is above that. Although he had to be like that, he had to be like man in every respect so that he can do these divine missions, so that he can accomplish these divine tasks. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He had to suffer in the same way as man, in order to help man when we suffer in ways. But notice how Hebrews is functioning. Notice the audience, what the audience believes, what the author is trying to communicate to them, how he argues, and in what way he argues. And you'll, you'll start seeing below the surface level, what is the audience? What is the status of the audience? What does the audience believe? And how is he attempting to affect change? This is propaganda. It's written for a reason. It's written to affect change in their mentality. To convert them from something they do believe to something that the author wants them to believe. This is how he does it. He builds a series of arguments. He answers potential objections. He constantly reinforces and assumes the sale. These are the tactics that he uses to convert this audience. To make them think the way that he wants them to. We need to start reading the entire Bible like that. The entire Bible is advocacy. It is propaganda. It is meant to affect change in the minds of the audience. It is meant to affect them to action. 
change their behavior, change their thought process, change how they see the world. It is propaganda. That's how we need to read the Bible, is advocacy. Anyways, that's about the gist of what I wanted to talk about tonight. Reading the Bible as propaganda, reading it as advocacy, trying to see the nature and intent of these writings. See below the surface level, understand how literature works, and what the points are that authors are trying to communicate. Try to read their minds based on how they write, in what fashion they write, and how they argue, how they think. Anyways, questions, comments, put that below, or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.